people are very receptive. I know when I walk the streets, people are warm about Susan B. Anthony, and that's a wonderful thing. You start out with people who see her as a very positive person, and that's a wonderful legacy for her. Welcome to Sippin' with Suffragists from WNIJ, a special spin-off episode of Drinkin' with Lincoln. I'm your host, Clint Cargile, and I know we usually explore the life of Abraham Lincoln through the eyes of the people who know him best, Lincoln presenters, but this episode, we're going to deviate to honor a couple of historic milestones. First, it is now 2020, and that marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. Second, February 15th is just around the corner, and that is Susan B. Anthony's 200th birthday. So in honor of these two special occasions, I'm going to visit with Ms. Anthony herself, portrayed by retired educator and longtime Susan B. portrayer, Kathy Ellsbury. The research is so fun because you find all these things that no one else knows about Susan B. Anthony. That's what I like, yeah. or all those little quirky things about her. We're going to learn a little about Susan B., and then I'll sit down with Kathy for a drink and get her take on America's most famous suffragist. And I have to admit, I didn't know a whole lot about Susan B. Anthony before I met Kathy. I mean, her name comes up a lot. And I knew she fought for women's rights and hated slavery and alcohol. I knew she was that shining woman on the silver dollar I wasn't allowed to spend when I was a kid. I think I've still got a couple of those stashed away somewhere. But if you came to me and told me she had designed the American flag or opened up some rehab clinics for celebrities, I wouldn't have been confident enough in my own knowledge of Susan B. Anthony to actually contradict you. So that's why this was such a fun and eye-opening episode to put together. Because Kathy Ellsbury was great, and I learned a ton, and I hope you will too. Now let's go meet Kathy in Galena, Illinois, where she'll take us on a tour of the town before we sit down for drinks at the Galena Brewing Company on this episode of Sippin' with Suffragists. And speaking of suffragists, several women's groups from the Rockford area have joined forces to form the Women's Suffrage Centennial 2020 Northern Illinois Celebration Committee. They have events ongoing all year long, including a 200th birthday celebration for Susan B. More on that at the end of the episode and in our show notes at WNIJ.org. All right, first... Let's back up and get some basic background information out of the way. Susan B. Anthony was born in Massachusetts on February 15, 1820. She is considered one of the most visible leaders of the women's suffrage movement of the late 19th century. And while suffrage was her lifelong passion, she also fought for equal rights for women, which included equal pay and equal protections under the law. She was strongly anti-slavery, and she was a temperance woman, calling for the prohibition of alcohol. She never held an elected office, but because of her activism and success at building the women's rights movement and bringing about real social change, some historians credit her as this country's first female politician. But where did this activism come from, this desire to lift up her fellow woman? Well, her father was a Quaker, so she was raised a Quaker, and Quakers, a bit ahead of their time, believed in equality. I mean, the Declaration of Independence has some stuff about equality in it too, but the Quakers actually put it into practice. They believed in equality of the sexes, and they even had women preachers. They were also strong abolitionists. Susan's father and brothers were heavily involved in the anti-slavery movement. The family home became a meeting place for progressives, abolitionists, and temperance fighters alike, including such well-known figures as William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, yes, that Frederick Douglass, and John Brown, yes, that John Brown. So that's the world Susan B. Anthony came from. And when she struck out on her own, she found work, as many women did, as a schoolteacher, which gave her a certain amount of independence. In those days, this was a job many women worked until they married or became pregnant, and then they had to quit to join the, quote, cult of true womanhood, as it was known, which basically said a woman's place was at home, taking care of said home, and having children, and teaching morality and ethics to said children. But Susan B. never married, never had children, so she kept on teaching for about 10 years or so, until she got bored with it started to suffer from what her friend Elizabeth Cady Stanton called the mental hunger. So Susan B. followed her family into the temperance and anti-slavery movements. But she soon found that, of all the things to be sexist, these so-called progressive movements did not allow women to participate at temperance and abolitionist meetings. Susan was so incensed by this that she went out and started her own groups. Ironically, one could argue that it was this barring of women from the fight for abolition and temperance that actually led to the women's rights movement, because it was around this time when Susan B. Anthony was really becoming active, that she met Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and the two forged a 50-year friendship, fighting for women's rights and spreading their message across the country. 
Susan was the gutsy, blunt, confident speaker who became the face of the movement. Stanton was the poet, the brilliant, organized, eloquent writer who supplied the voice of the movement. I forged the thunderbolts, Stanton once said, and she fired them. Now on to Galena. Galena is a lively river town in the northwest corner of Illinois. It made its fortune off two things. One, large lead deposits. And two, easy access to the Mississippi River to ship those lead deposits. I say lively because in its heyday, the town could boast of 26 taverns and 9 breweries. By the way, the river that connects Galena to the Mississippi River, it was originally called Fever River. The townsfolk eventually changed it to Galena River for obvious reasons. Also, Galena floods a lot which the city has tried to remedy in the last few decades. But in the 19th century, some newspapers called it the American Venice. Galena in the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s was a powerhouse of politics. That's Shelby Miller, curator and director of education and outreach at the Galena History Museum, which operates out of the same historic home it has occupied since 1938. But it's almost redundant to call any home in Galena historic. The city has about 800 buildings on the National Historic Register. That's 80% of the town. There's a lot of history there, and they're very proud of it. Lincoln was here. Stephen Douglas was here. People that needed to campaign came to Galena. And this wasn't just for political issues like voting for the next election, but political issues like women's suffrage. The Galena History Museum is mostly about Galena's most famous resident, Ulysses S. Grant, who moved here to work in his father's leather business just before the Civil War. He still lived here when he was elected president. If you're into Grant, the museum is an awesome place to visit. You can also learn about the other eight Civil War generals who called Galena home. But the museum does have a small exhibit honoring the women's suffrage movement, which Miller says was very strong in Galena and the surrounding region. Most of our exhibit pieces come from the League of Women Voters of Joe Davis County. The League started in 1920, and so they've done a lot with voting rights and different issues in the county, and is celebrating its 100th this year as well. One prominent local suffragist was Sarah Coates Harris, a Quaker, like Susan B., and the wife of Daniel Harris, a wealthy steamboat captain. Sarah Harris worked as a doctor and traveled around lecturing on women's health, which was unheard of at the time. In 1869, she organized a women's suffrage rally in Galena. She invited Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They accepted. Kathy asked me to meet her in the lobby of the DeSoto House Hotel on Galena's Main Street. Open since 1855, it's the oldest hotel in the state of Illinois. It's also the hotel Susan B. Anthony and her friend Elizabeth Cady Stanton stayed in when they visited Galena on March 2nd, 1869. I came in on the train, and the train depot is across the river built in the 1850s when Galena was in its heyday. And this was the premier hotel west of Chicago. And so I stayed here. Here's a picture of me. Kathy leads me to a glass case featuring pictures of other famous guests who stayed at DeSoto House. There she was, of course, Ms. Anthony, and her friend Elizabeth Cady Stanton. There was also Abraham Lincoln, who gave a speech from the hotel's balcony in 1856, and Abe and Susan's good friend Frederick Douglass. Other guests included Mark Twain, Herman Melville, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Grant used the hotel as his campaign headquarters in 1868. So as you can see, this place is steeped in American political, cultural, and social history. A fitting place to meet Miss Anthony. You need to tell me when I have to be quiet. I cut <laughs> no, no, your no. leg off. <laughs> this is great. This is a great place to live yeah, if you like is. history. I should note, Kathy is the spitting image of Susan B. Anthony. Her hair is pulled back in a tight, netted bun. She wears thin wire spectacles, black gloves, a Victorian-style cameo pendant, and a black hoop dress adorned with the loose and frilly lace popular to that period. I couldn't help but notice that she also wears a long red shawl, which stands out in sharp contrast to the otherwise dour-looking ensemble. I always wore a red shawl. I don't know that most people knew that about Susan B. Anthony, but there was a newspaper article in a Washington paper that said, ah, spring is here, we've spotted a bit of red. No, it's not Robin Redbreast, it's Susan B. Anthony, come once again to harangue Congress to let women vote. She came every year for 30 years. I also noticed Kathy clutching a large alligator skin purse, complete with little alligator feet dangling off the front. This theater group I'm in, this historical group, do a fashion show because many of them collect vintage clothing. They wanted Susan B. Anthony in a fashion show, and I'm going, Susan B. Anthony, fashion show, let me see. So I'm doing research. Well, I found the red shawl, and then I found the alligator purse, and I'm sitting, it's like, alligator purse, alligator purse. I went downstairs in my storage room, and this is my 
great-grandmother's alligator purse. And look at that with the little feet. Isn't mm-hmm. that just amazing? Kathy recites a little rhyme she's uncovered about Susan and her purse. It would have been sung on playgrounds while kids were skipping rope. Lucy had a baby. She named him Tiny Tim. She put him in the bathtub to see if he could swim. He drank up all the water. He ate up all the soap. He tried to swallow the bathtub, but it got caught in his throat. Call the doctor. Call the nurse. Call the lady with the alligator purse. Mumps, said the doctor. Measles, said the nurse. Vote, said the lady with the alligator purse. They heard it on the playground. You know, the kids One of Susan B. Anthony's actual alligator skin purses is on display at the Susan B. Anthony Museum in Rochester, New York. Kathy tells me that Susan carried large purses, not as a fashion statement, but to send a message. It was a symbol of women's rights. Before Susan B. Anthony, women could not keep their own earnings or their own inheritance. Everything was turned over to their husband. And she said every woman needed a purse with the money in it to be independent. Those were some of the same topics Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton spoke about when they came to Galena in 1869. Galena was just one of many stops they made throughout the Midwest on that particular speaking tour. Kathy shared some insight on what it was like back then for Susan to travel by train. It was very difficult. If you were young, and I was 49 when I came here, you had to sit by yourself or by the oldest man on the train, the one that looked the least likely to attack you. And if you were a young lady, you could not speak the entire train ride. You were to sit with your eyes downcast, lest you call advances being made to you. Now, if you were a white hair like myself, I could judge a gentleman. But if I were young, it was suspected I was not bright enough to be able to tell a villain if he were in fine broadcloth. When Susan B. Anthony arrived at a hotel, as a single woman, she had to ask the proprietor to personally escort her to her room, thus preserving her reputation. And when she came down for dinner... I could not go into the dining room by myself, lest I be considered, well, first of all, felt sorry for, second of all, perhaps loose morals. I had to be escorted by a man to my table. Susan B. Anthony traveled a lot. Her entire career and her income was based on public appearances at various events and rallies. She crisscrossed the country multiple times throughout her life, oftentimes putting herself in danger. Angry mobs gathered outside her lectures. She was subjected to insults, hisses, catcalls, and threats. She had rotten produce hurled at her. That's one of the reasons she wore all black when speaking in public. Yes, it looked dignified, but it also hid the rotten eggs and tomatoes when they splattered across her dress. On top of all that, mobs burned her in effigy dragged those effigies down the street, and ministers spoke out against her and barred her from speaking in their churches. But Susan, she never backed down from anything. And the lecture circuit wasn't always like that, especially in Susan's later years, when she was shown more respect, even by those who still disagreed with her. One of the places that I spoke, poor little flower that I was to be taken care of, (laughs) was a tavern in, um, it must have been Montana, out in there somewhere, to a bunch of miners. And they had very nicely covered all of the alcohol bottles with calico, knowing that I was a temperance leader. So I stood on the bar, and the room was full of all these miners, and they were all smoking while I started to cough. And they very nicely put out their cigarettes and their cigars and their pipes, but they continued to drink. But when I got done, I got applause, and I got gold dust in the hat that was passed around. So it's always interesting to me that we are so fragile that we have to be so careful of so many things. (laughs) Then Kathy takes us on a tour of the hotel. She walks us through the large, elegant ballroom, which was built in 1858. Kathy is a regular performer here, portraying other prominent women from Galena's past. I asked if she knew exactly which rooms the hotel's famous guests had stayed in, but Kathy says there's no way to know for sure. The hotel was fully renovated, the rooms completely refigured in the 1980s, so the interior is very different than when Susan B. Anthony walked its halls. When I stayed here, there were five floors. The top two floors fell into disrepair when Galena fell into disrepair. Galena fell into disrepair for several reasons. One, after the Civil War, the demand for lead plummeted. And two, they had cut down all the trees around the river to burn the fires that smelt the lead, which caused massive erosion filling the river with thick silt that cut off a lot of the shipping that had made Galena such a valuable location in the first place. Kathy knows all about the history of Galena, because it is also one of Illinois' premier locations for ghosts, 
and for the past five years, she has performed in Galena's annual Halloween show, appearing as different historic figures said to haunt Galena and DeSoto House. People who stay on the third floor hear people above them. That's one of the things that happens here. <laughs> and the basement here, uh, well, the ground floor, at one time was bustling with businesses, and the mortuary was down here. So 1862, maybe, there were 14 men, Union soldiers, from Galena. They left from here, and there was a big send-off, and their train in Indiana was blown up, and all of them perished. They brought them all back here. Well, that caused also many ghost stories. There is a lady in black who has been seen. We should go down and look at that. Would you like to look sure. at that? There's a lady in black who has been seen coming and going. In this. So the story goes that the wife of one of the officers didn't want him to go off to war. And when she found out he'd enlisted against her wishes, she refused to speak to him. When he was killed, she was so distraught that she had sent him off to die without a word that she now haunts the former morgue, dressed all in black. This used to be a doorway, and people, several people have seen the lady in black coming in and out of, mm -hmm. of this space, and so it was saved. Oh, wow. Kathy has played the woman in black several times in local performances. She has also played a Victorian woman in mourning. Doing the mourning habits, the five years that those poor women were put through in their plain black clothes, their widow's weeds, so that's really interesting. I had to learn all about all those horrible Victorian mourning habits. And you know, men wore a band around their arm for three months, and women were shut up for five years. So not a, not a lovely thing. I love to tell kids that story. Then it was time to head down to Galena Brewing to do what the real Susan B. Anthony absolutely would not have done, drink some alcohol. Do you want to go see where Davis Hall was, which is where we spoke? Sure. Okay, it's just right across the street. It is, of course, a shop now and apartments and whatever. We walked down to the site of the former Davis Hall. It's an old brick building. It has some shops and apartments and whatever. Then we stroll toward the brewery. It's not open yet, so Kathy tells me more stories about Galena, because this is what she does. In the summer, the Galena History Museum hires Kathy and other historical actors to walk the streets as different historic figures, sharing the town's rich history with Galena's many, many tourists. She tells me about Galena resident and Lincoln friend Elihu Washburn, how he helped put Lincoln in office, how he facilitated Grant's rise to power, how he was the most important political figure in American history that no one knows about, and, most important of all, that she got to attend his 200th birthday party with her reenactor friends. And we had, only in Galena, we had President and Mrs. Grant. We had General and Mrs. Grant. We had all nine Civil War generals, their wives, and I was the mistress of ceremonies, and so I finally got to have a ball gown that I got to wear, but it was a great party. All these impersonators there doing speech. It was, oh, and we had Washburn, of course, and his wife. But it was really fun, all these people in costume, and that's great. She loves what she does, and now it's time to go drink a beer with Susan B. Anthony. Words that have never been said by anyone ever. Hello. Hi. Before I sat down with Kathy in Galena Brewing's tap room, I had the chance to chat with the brewery's owner and local history buff, Warren Bell. This used to be the Furlong Funeral Home. It was that from 1964 until 2009 when we bought it and converted it into this brewery. Warren is from South Africa. He came to America in 1997 to work for a software company. He still works in software. But in 2003, he and his wife moved to Galena to run a bed and breakfast. And then in 2010, they opened the Galena Brewing Company. I asked Warren what took him from software to hospitality to beer. When we were running the bed and breakfast, tourists were continually asking us, how come Galena doesn't have a brew pub? Seems to be the ideal place for a brew pub. Warren thought this was strange, especially since Galena has such a rich brewing history. There were nine breweries in Galena during the 1800s, which is why we have the nine stars above our logo. Some people think it's the nine generals of Galena, but we don't care about them. We care about the nine <laughs> breweries. <laughs> So now Galena Brewing Company offers 12 different beers, all brewed on site, many of them tied into Galena history. There's Fever River Ale, Miner's Treasure Amber Ale, and Uli Stout, named for, of course, Ulysses S. Grant. Warren also shared this little gem of beer history, especially for you Red Stripe fans out there. Most people think that Red Stripe is a Jamaican beer, but in fact it was made in Galena for 100 years before it went to Jamaica, and it hasn't been in Jamaica for 100 years yet, so it's really a Galena beer. Red Stripe was the flagship beer of the Galena Brewing Company, no relation to Warren's current Galena Brewing Company. 
When the company folded in the 1930s, it was bought by two British investors who then moved the operation to Jamaica. Warren has photos, bottles, and an old shipping crate to prove it. Kathy and Warren got to talking about Galena history. We found out that the bed and breakfast Warren and his wife had owned had belonged to Captain Robert Scribe Harris, a wealthy steamboat captain who was the brother of the previously mentioned wealthy steamboat captain, Daniel Harris, whose home is also a bed and breakfast, and who was married to Sarah Coates Harris, who organized the suffrage convention that brought Susan B. Anthony to town in 1869. So there, we've come full circle. All roads lead back to Susan B. Anthony. So Warren serves us up some beer. Kathy has the Annabelle IPA, and I get the Lady in Red, a sour red ale. I don't normally go in for sour beer, but the name was calling to me. Lady in Red, Susan B. Anthony's Red Shawl, the Lady in Black who haunts the DeSoto House Hotel, interviewing Kathy who plays both women, seemed like there was some kind of karmic connection there, even if I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Whatever the case, it's not a bad beer, for a sour ale. Anyway, I start off by jokingly asking what type of beer Susan B. Anthony would have ordered. Kathy says that if Susan B. Anthony ordered any beer, it would have been just to throw it in my face. Fair enough. So, throughout the day, I noticed Kathy seemed infatuated with clothes. The clothes historical figures wore, which translated directly into the clothes she wore. That seemed like a good place to start. She loved clothes, which is an interesting thing that people don't know about her. When she visited Queen Victoria, she had a purple velvet dress made that she could wear. But she always has lots and lots of lace and necklaces and ruffles. And so I have a, it's kind of a bustle. That's interesting because she was raised as a Quaker. She was, but her dad lost his money in 1836 and she was sent off then to teach school. Then she discovered that I think she liked clothes. I mean, I think she discovered a whole world out there that she didn't realize existed because some of the pictures of her at that time, she's wearing bright plaids. and So mm -hmm. I think she had fun with clothes. She was also quite attractive and had many invitations for marriage. And she said, uh, I hope I get this quote exactly right. She said, who would give up their independence to be a housekeeper? When I was young, if you married someone poor, you became a drudge. If you married someone wealthy, you became a doll. Had I married when I was young, I would have spent 55 years either as a drudge or a doll, and neither seems to suit me. <laughs> And she never married, correct? No, she never okay. married. No, and there are, is discussion that she was perhaps a lesbian. There's no proof, of course, but she did keep herself surrounded with a flock of, of ladies, all, which she would have anyway, and that's the thing. I, I don't know that anyone will ever know that. Unless some unknown letter or document turns up, then there's no way right. of ever, yeah. Right. All right, well, we've covered a lot of Susan B. Anthony, which, of course, is you know one of the reasons we're here. But I would like to know about Kathy Ellsbury. Where are you originally from? Okay, I was born in a town of 220 people in Northwest Iowa. My mother said that that was an inflated count. They counted the dogs. <laughs> uh, my mother was probably the funniest human being that ever lived. But my father owned two grain elevators. My grandpa was a doctor, or de excuse me, a dentist. And my mom went to college for two years. She went to Cornell in Iowa the first year, and it was a Methodist school, and she hated it. So she went to the <laughs> University of Iowa. But she had to come home so that her brother could go to college because mm. it was the 30s, and a dentist didn't make any money at all. They gave Grandpapa, you know, ear of corn or something to pay mm -hmm. for, their, for their tooth. I played girls' basketball, six-on-six six girls' basketball, and I now play granny basketball, by the way. Yeah? I'm on a granny there's basketball a, There's a league team. here in Galena? There, no, there's a, in Dubuque. In Dubuque, okay. There are actually 15 granny basketball teams in Iowa. People who my age that played when they were in high school and just miss that athletic experience. <laughs> so anyway, that's that small town in Iowa. I went to uh, the University of Iowa. I graduated from there in 1967 with a degree in literature and a minor in theater. And I taught school in Oak Park, Illinois, my first couple of years, married the assistant principal, who was in my room frequently helping me discipline the junior high boys because I had no control whatsoever. And then I, I have one daughter who will be 50 in January. Oh, God. Now, I was the first woman teacher in Oak Park, Illinois, to teach pregnant. 
I didn't know that. It's not a battle I fought. I would have, but I, it, I, they just let me. Because I taught in maternity clothes. And as soon as you had to wear maternity clothes in Oak Park, Illinois, in 1966, they fired you from your job. And I just happened, well, and it would have been 69, I just happened to be that person. It never crossed my mind anyone would tell me I couldn't teach in maternity clothes. And the interesting thing was that I wore mini dresses. Not only did I teach pregnant mini dresses with fishnet nylons. <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure who they thought they got, but mm -hmm. um, I taught junior high and I had my daughter in January and in December, I quit teaching at Christmas break. And I went to a dance and danced eight and a half months pregnant at a school dance. I mean, I, my husband, my first husband was very straight. The second one's an artist, but the first one's very, very straight. And there was a parent meeting when I was pregnant and they came down, I was on the second floor of this building in, in Oak Park, Illinois, and they came downstairs laughing and my husband came upstairs and he said, what did you do? I know it was you. <laughs> and I was pregnant and the elastic on my slip had broken and my slip fell off and I just kicked it, grabbed it and threw it on my desk and kept talking and that was apparently, <laughs> so I, but it never dawned on me you know, Iowa allowed women to play athletics. Mm -hmm. My mother played on a basketball team in 1928, and they got on the bus and went to other schools. And it had never dawned on me that that women were in any way. I, I just it never dawned on me. I was not, I somehow had gone through. My mother went to college. My grandmother went to college, and so the whole idea that that I would be stopped from doing anything never crossed my mind, except I went to get a library card in Aurora and they wouldn't give me, I was a teacher and they wouldn't give me a library card. They wanted my husband's name on it. And I said, we have the same damn job. What do you need? I was, but I don't, we really did, my generation. I'm in a poetry group and we meet every week. I thought when you, when you were a literature major and you grew up, Everybody talked poetry, mm -hmm. wrong, <laughs> no. But I have discovered we have this group of women who love poetry and we meet monthly for six years. Not monthly, weekly for six years on Monday afternoon and read poetry and talk about it. And we are all that generation. We worked, we had babysitters for our children, we had birth control, we, without even knowing that we were trendsetters, we are really the first generation that that happened with, which is kind of an interesting position to be in, particularly when you didn't know you were fighting the battle. Hmm. Uh, then we moved to Aurora, and I taught in Aurora for years, and I was the gifted coordinator for the school district and literacy facilitator. I moved to the downtown office, and I did on-site training, and and uh, did demonstration lessons and whatever for teachers. And then I ended up working for uh, Gretchen Courtney and Associates, which was the largest staff development provider in Illinois. And for about 19 years, until 2014, I um, traveled all over Illinois doing workshops for teachers on how to teach comprehension and writing. Great fun. Mm -hmm. Nothing better than rolling in a school with a suitcase being entertaining to all the children and then leaving them all. <laughs> that was a great job. <laughs> well, what got you into being Susan B. Anthony? Well, actually, I moved here in, in uh, 2006, and I went to a performance of Women of Courage and Commitment, and they all had these gorgeous gowns. Oh, my, all these silk and satin. And I went up to them afterwards, and I said, you know, I did theater. Can I be in your group? I like your clothes. They said, yeah, be Susan B. Anthony. Oh, good, thank you, black. <laughs> so they assigned me Susan B. Okay. Anthony. And I am so glad they did because I, of course, knew who she was, but I never, I, do, I don't think I would have ever had the honor of, of knowing her the way I do doing this. And mm -hmm. that's really how, that is exactly how it started. And I moved from one speech that was kind of canned that I wrote, and I tried to use as many of her quotes as possible. And then it just spread to, to doing research, like I mentioned on the style show, or the fashion show, 
and her feelings on religion and her feelings on Christmas and you know it just explodes into all other places and I do well I was just at the library in um, uh, Green Bay Wisconsin doing a Susan B thing that was an hour and so you do more research and you know try to tailor but that's how I started were you doing theater before that no, okay. I, I didn't have time. I said once I retired, I would do it. I did, well, I was really active in it in high school. You know, there were 16 kids in my class, so if you were going to have a play, you were in it because there were 16 kids in my That's like being homecoming queen. You know, when there are only six girls, it's your turn. <laughs> you know, I, although I wasn't homecoming queen, mm -hmm. I misspoke. I was FFA sweetheart. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but I did a lot of speech work. And then at, at Iowa, I did some work, but I did, I was a horrible student. My first year I got a 175, and my second semester I got a 1.8, and my father said, you know, kid, if it's too hard for you down here at the University of Iowa, you can come live at home and go to a small religious college 25 miles away. I got a 3.97 the next semester. So I didn't do much theater work. My you know, my minor in theater, in drama, was actually reading plays more than it was acting. But I directed kids the whole time I was teaching. We did plays, and I was directing. And I always said once I retired, I was going to get into little, the you know, little town theater. So. So what brought you to Galena originally? Um, my husband was. This is my second husband. My first husband died of cancer when I was forty, but. He was an art teacher, and I'm a really active Episcopalian, really active, very progressive, wonderful church. And so we had a list of things that we required in retirement. Mm -hmm. Artist community, because he was an artist, and an active Episcopal church, and uh, you know, history, and lovely surroundings, and everything but a major airport. So my sister lives in Cedar Rapids, and we were here one spring, and we rented a house in the territory, and there were deer leaping, and all these <laughs> flowers. It was just mm -hmm. lovely, and we said, well, why not here? Because I could continue then to work. So we just kind of ended up here. Well, the first, when we visited this Episcopal church, the first event that we happened to be here for was an art opening. And the outreach was you brought appetizers and wine to support struggling artists. Okay, that's my kind of outreach. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> so anyway, that's why we're here. And we built two geodesic domes is our okay. home. was built in the territory, my husband and the architect. Mm -hmm. I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. I did things like, can I have a broom closet? And they said, no, it's not aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> So, uh, and the workmen on that called it the boobs in the woods because they're two domes. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> so you started off, you were assigned Susan B. Anthony and sort of fell into your lap. How did you dive into the character? I got the book, and I don't know how I happened to end up with this, but I bought the book Failure is Impossible, in her own words, by the, the author Lynn Sher. And it is amazing. Covers her entire life, but she's found Susan B. Anthony's words to use as often as possible. It's kind of strung this together, which is perfect because you don't want to paraphrase Susan B. Anthony if you don't have to. So it was a wonderful read, but what's really nice for this is there's an index in the back and you can say, what did Susan think about this? And it's listed that way. So it was really usable for this. And then I just do research. I mean, God gave us Google. <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't remember a quote this morning, and so I started the quote, and of course it pops up and finishes. Yeah, I couldn't do half the research I do without I know, the it's internet. Just amazing. Being able to search old newspapers and books on Google Books, it's, it's amazing. Yes, it is. And, uh, and Galena helps because they had an old newspaper that covered like when she was here. And, but, but really, you know, the internet is incredible. Although I do recommend the book. Do you have a favorite Susan B. Anthony anecdote? Mm. I know there's a lot to choose from there. but Well, I've already shared a lot of them with mm -hmm. you. Oh, actually, 
You know, she voted in 1872 okay. in the election because she assumed because uh, that she was a citizen. So she voted and she was arrested and she was taken to jail on a streetcar. And um, she didn't have the fare for the streetcar. And so she gets on the streetcar and they ask her for one and she says, I do not have the fare, but I am sure that my escort here who is taking me to jail, will be glad to pay my fare. <laughs> and she thinks it's good that the women on board witness her arrest because the fact is, we women are in chains and our servitude is all the more debasing because we do not realize it. But the idea of Susan B. Anthony being arrested and she refused to pay the fine, she was fined and refused to pay it and it obviously got dropped, the whole, the whole thing got dropped. Did it become a big sensation in the news that she was arrested? Yes, it did. You know, when she, when she was laying on her deathbed, she raised her little finger and she said the size of it was how close she came. This was all that was left before women had the right to vote and she was not going to be alive to see it and what a cruel thing oh, that wow. was. Yeah. Mm. She did work hard. She did over a hundred speeches a year in this country that took all this travel. I, she was back and forth. She had really no other life than, than doing this. She loved Elizabeth Cady Stanton's children. Mm -hmm. She was a great aunt. You know, I mean, she was a, a wonderful aunt. She uh, watched them for uh, the Stantons, babysat, made cookies and that kind of thing. Okay. I think I've told you a lot of well, the anecdotes. Well, a lot of your stories, the thing that I was surprised about is just how often she seemed to put herself in danger. A lot of people really, really hated her, and I guess I just didn't understand the extent that just about every time she got up and spoke, she was putting herself in, in, a, in the way of physical harm, at least. Absolutely. Well, I know, I, and I was telling you, too, about when she wore a blo her bloomers. Mm -hmm. And she wore them for a year, and she said, physically, they were a comfort. Mentally, they were a crucifixion. She said, I was chased by hordes of young boys who at best hurled negative words and at worst stones, and ministers spoke out against her from the pulpit, and they were arrested for wearing those bloomers for male impersonation. And she said that she had to give up wearing them because her audiences no longer were listening to what she had to say. They were only looking at what she was wearing and one could only have one passion at a time that you could do and it was more important women could vote than what they wore. Mm -hmm. Although those bloomers were popular until Susan B. Anthony started wearing them because they were really comfortable. But as soon as she started wearing them and they became a symbol of the suffrage movement, then suddenly nobody wore them until the bicycle came. And Susan felt that the bicycle would be the savior of women because it allowed them their first freedom. And the bloomers came back because they couldn't ride their bikes without them. Wow, yeah. so I didn't know the bicycle was so connected to the, the women's rights movement. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, and I think I was telling you, you know, women suffered from punctured lungs and broken ribs and there was 22 pounds of pressure exerted on a woman when there, that corset was laced. And there was a whole rational clothing movement that believed that that was a plot by men. If you couldn't walk by yourself and get dressed by yourself, how could you be free? Mm -hmm. And that men had done that, that was part of how they were keeping women subservient was to make them dress that way. Which is, I, I never thought of that before. And a group of doctors came out in the 18, I think it was 70s, and said that they could no longer use wealthy women's bodies for cadavers to study medicine because their internal organs were all over the place in the wrong place because of those courses. Oh my gosh. So it was also a health thing. I mean, yeah, I, yeah uh, just another thing that that they felt men had done to women. Wow. You said you have different outfits that you use for different time periods. What are the, what are the different time periods and outfits that you've used for Susan B. Anthony? Oh, um, I just have this one for Susan B. Anthony. So I have 1860s, 50s, 60s, and then I have the 
1890s and she died in 1906. So I have that time period too. But I have other characters I do and I have other clothing. What other characters do you do? Well, I do my great, I have my great, great grandfather, James Stilson's Civil War letters. He was with Sherman and he had a farm in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin and he joined in 1864. So I do my great-great-grandmother of what it would have been like to be a woman. She was like, I don't know, 31 or something, raised in McHenry, Illinois, you know, went to school and whatever, and there she's left on a farm with two little kids. And then I do Nellie Taft. Each of us picked a president's wife that no one knew anything about. That would be one of them. <laughs> yeah, oh, fascinating lady though. Oh my goodness, I love doing that. So I researched and wrote a script on her. I have a $500 dress that is gorgeous. She was 1908 to 1912, so Edwardian kind of. And then I did Clara McClellan, who the Aldrich House Bed and Breakfast was owned by Robert McClellan, who was a big, important person, and his wife was Clara from the East, and they hosted the Grants for dinner in 1880 at their little bed and breakfast. Mm -hmm. So they asked me to portray her for a, a dinner party. And so I had to do research on her, and of course I had to get something appropriate for a dinner dress of the 1880s, mm -hmm. which is gorgeous. So. So you still get to wear the colorful costumes that I do you want now, to wear. I do now, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, after years of wearing Susan B. Anthony black, mm -hmm. I now have branched out mm -hmm. a little, yeah. So Susan B. Anthony did hundreds of appearances a year. How often do you portray her? Oh, you know what? I, I'd say about 15 times a year. Okay. Not as, we have bus tours that ask for our group. And now I'm getting, because it's the year it is, there are, people are calling because they know I do Susan B. Anthony. The word is somehow, I've never put the word out, but somebody has. Okay. And I'm getting asked to do things. This is an important year. Well, that was one of the questions I, I had for you, is how you market yourself. Don't. Not at all? Not <laughs> just at word all. of mouth? Yeah, just okay. word of mouth. I keep thinking, you know, maybe I should, but I am 74. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, you know, memorizing... <laughs> Actually, I'm sure it's wonderful for me. My Nellie Taft is 15 straight minutes of memory, and I know it's good for me to do that, but I know at some point at 74, I'm going to stand up there and go, oh my God, I have no idea what I... Well, actually, I did that once. I was playing a ghost in the ghost show, and then we had a bus tour, and I was doing Susan B. Anthony, and I've done it a million times, the, the one script and I never have any trouble with memory with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I went in to do this script, and one of my lines is, I will not pay one dollar of that unjust penalty. What I will do is quote for you an old revolutionary maxim. Nothing, absolutely <laughs> nothing. And you know, it's not like you can make up an old revolutionary <laughs> maxim. You don't have any of those in reserve? No, I don't. So I said, Look, I'm almost 200 years old. I've had a bad day. I had to ride here on a train, and a woman wasn't in charge of the train schedules. And anyway, uh, the gal had to, that's the only time I've ever had to be fed a line. <laughs> so that's the scary thing, is that you're going to blow it. Well, you mentioned that the women's suffrage centennial is coming up. Do you have any big plans for that? We're going to do a show. I have a friend here that does Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And our director is in the process of writing a show for this summer. Okay. So we are going to do something. And I want to go to New York and go to her house personally. Yeah, actually, our last episode of Drinking with Lincoln, we interviewed Laura Keyes. Yes. Who, as Mary Lincoln, but she also does Elizabeth Cady right, Stanton. Right, I know. So. And I, she's the one that gives my name out. Okay. Because she markets herself. She was in Women of Courage and Commitment for a while. Mm -hmm. And then they moved. And so she gives my name out. That's she's my word of mouth. Yeah, I actually got your contact information from Laura from, from Laura Keys. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> what do your friends and family think of what you do of of being Susan B. Anthony? My husband is impressed. My husband <laughs> just thinks it's wonderful that I can memorize. First of all, mm -hmm. we tried to put him in a play and he couldn't learn like three lines. <laughs> so he was an undertaker in one of the Halloween plays, and we had to tape his lines on the side of a casket. <laughs> so anyway, he's really impressed. Um, you know, I, I, my sister thinks it's wonderful. You know, I don't, 
nobody says much. Mm -hmm. Talking is easy for me. I think they don't think this is much of a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they come. Uh, now my, my daughter has even seen one, but I, yeah, nobody says much about it. Actually, they're not impressed enough. How do you like them apples? <laughs> you bring that up, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> Looking back on your career as Susan B. Anthony, is there anything that you're most proud of? The whole thing. Being able to use her words and move people. And I have been so moved. There, it's funny, when you do a part over and over again, you think, well, it's going to... And I still get weepy sometimes at, at what she did and, and you know how she said it and how she faced that kind of daily hatred and lack of respect. And I think, I, well, Susan B. Anthony, when she was in Temperance, she had worked really hard and she went to a temperance conference and they wouldn't let her speak. Mm -hmm. It was her first running because she was Quaker and everybody spoke when they were Quakers. So she went out and started her own temperance group and she got thousands of signatures in New York State to present to the legislature against letting women and men drink. And they wouldn't accept them because they were women's signatures and they didn't count. And that was when that was her, okay, mm -hmm. she said we might as well be wolves baying at the moon without mm -hmm. the right to vote. And that was really when it dawned on her mm -hmm. that she wasn't going to be able to do anything until women could vote. And some of her, have you ever read any of her abolition speeches? I have not. Oh my God, they're beautiful. I mean, she's essentially, as I said, not eloquent. Oh man, I thought they were. Mm -hmm. Of course, eloquence then we now have a president that, never mind. <laughs> Let's not even speak of eloquence, shall we? <laughs> right. Yeah. Not in the same uh, right. category. I know. And I, I just, I found like when you were telling me so many of these stories, I'm, I'm just like laughing at the absurdity of what she had to go through at the time. I mean, I guess it's really not funny, but it's just thinking about how so opposite it is of well, how things are now. It's horrible. Also, Susan B. Anthony was a fighter for women's equal pay, mm -hmm. which is an issue that is still. still. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was actually, that's one of the things she spoke about here, was not only letting them work, and you didn't have to do anything extra for them, you just had to give them the same as you gave the men. She was not looking for a handout for women or to feel sorry for them. They needed to be respected and paid the same for the same job, which... I still don't understand why they're not. And black women, and of course there's that whole issue too. Black women were not under the women's right to vote. That was an issue. The, the women's groups split. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton refused to go along with the 15th Amendment and they started an offshoot of the group because they were so upset about it. And actually black women got left out. And that was not Susan B. Anthony's choice. But they accepted it in order to get some movement for women. But there are people who are really upset with her, again, over the fact that they didn't consider all women at the time. What a hard time to live. Yeah. Well, hell, this is a hard time to live. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. How do any of us sit quiet? I can't figure out why we're all not out on the street. I know this is all just speculative, but you know, obviously our country is very divided right now. Do you think that Susan B. Anthony would have any words of encouragement for what's going on in our country right now? Well, I know that she would stand up and speak out for who she is, and who she is is someone who you could speak of Susan B. Anthony as someone who felt that justice was due everyone. And I think that she would speak out for uh, immigrants in cages. And I have no doubt that you would find her in the center. Actually, and, I, and uh, this is not in any way an endorsement or whatever, but Elizabeth Warren sometimes reminds me of Susan B. Anthony because she stands there 
and speaks her mind and is very passionate. And I see Susan B. Anthony doing that. She would not have sat back. She would have been a woman's marcher, I have no doubt. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for taking oh, the time to talk to us today. Fun. Thank yeah, you. it was a lot of fun. I learned so much today. Oh, well, good. <laughs> Old school teachers never die, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to just say here's to sipping with Susan. Oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> Hold on. Perfect. What a fun thing to do. How did you get started doing this? Um, well, my background's in history. I, I do a lot of... As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, a milestone that, sadly, Susan B. Anthony never got to see. But let's not be down about that, because there will be celebrations going on all over the country all year long. So be sure to look into what's going on in your area. And I want to call your attention to the Women's Suffrage Centennial 2020 Northern Illinois Celebration, or WSC 2020. This collaboration, of which WNIJ is a part, is sponsoring tons of events all year long, which you can find on the WNIJ community calendar. Coming up soon is Sippin' and Tippin' with Susan, celebrating the 200th birthday of Susan B. Anthony. It will be held February 11th at the University Club in Rockford. Kathy Ellsbury will be there as the guest of honor, so you'll be able to meet her in person. And she'll be appearing alongside her lifelong friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, portrayed by the last episode's guest, Laura Keyes. There will be another big celebration, aptly titled Sippin' with Suffragists, on August 18th, the exact date the 19th Amendment was ratified 100 years ago. It will be held at Prairie Street Brewing in Rockford. Proceeds from both events benefit the WSC 2020 Centennial Sculpture Project. And you can find out more about these fundraisers, the Women's Suffrage Centennial Celebration, and the many, many events they have planned for 2020 on their Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for WSC 2020 IL. I'll also drop a link in our show notes at WNIJ.org. And that's it for this episode of Sippin' with Suffragists, a special spinoff of Drinkin' with Lincoln. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Kathy Ellsbury for spending the day with us in Galena. Thanks also to Shelby Miller of the Galena History Museum, and Warren Bell of the Galena Brewing Company for sharing your space and your delicious beer. Our sound engineer is Spencer Tripp. For more information on the people, places, and events you heard about in this episode, check out the show notes at WNIJ.org. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, the NPR One app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And consider leaving us a review. And if there are any topics you'd like us to cover or living history presenters you'd like us to interview, drop us a line at lincoln at niu.edu. This show was produced by WNIJ, Northern Public Radio, where you learn something new every day. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 